John 13, verse 1. It was just up before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were there in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to him. So got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This is Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Son of God, if you're not, maybe you have some question marks around who this Jesus might actually be, but you know at the very least all of our calendars and human history have basically been routed around this birth and this person fairly epic person in, in human history, uh, fairly to put it mildly, most would say the most influential uh, of all time. And here he is performing a very normal act of hospitality around a meal. Here he is. Now, just a reminder, this is like a normal practice before you think this is some spiritual thing. And Jesus is just suddenly deciding, I know what would be an interesting, like, little picture for you. I'll just wash your feet. This day and age, that would be what? Pretty strange. It wasn't. It, it just, just visualize with me, you're in the ancient Near East and you're walking along roads in open-toed sandals. Your feet are what? Grody. I don't have grody feet regularly, even with shoes. No, I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, so Jesus gets down and does the work of a servant. We've talked uh, in the past, even some of the, I love this story. I love returning to stories and turning them like a jewel, like the different dimensions that exist in these stories. What he even takes off and how the writer describes what he's taking off and is putting literally on the servant's robe. He's positioning himself as a servant of all. And as we read later, he says, do you want to be great? Do you want to lead in the kingdom of God? And what I'm doing in the way of Jesus, you become a servant. Every book you've ever read on servant leadership, this is where it all be goes back to, literally. It all begins here. We're starting a new series, and uh, it's going to be a series. We've never done this before. It's going to pop up four times over the next year. So what we're going to do is we, um, as we've been talking about the sorts of ways that we want to grow as a family, we spent last week right? This unbelievable, we're going to return back to a lot of those themes again uh, in the coming weeks, but this big week on like, what does it really mean for us to move further into being deployed as the church? Launched these things called outposts. We literally kind of rearranged our structure. So if you're here and that God's put a call in your heart to start something, to be the church in some way, we want to give you money or resourcing or coaching we want to give you things, a platform of services to help you go be the church. So there's a table in the back that Adam will be at that says start something. And there's all sorts of info online, pay attention to social media, all that jazz. So there's all that. And then there's the how are we being formed? There's the going out and mission, but who are we becoming? And so we thought, let's stop our series. We're going to do a big series on the life of Jesus starting at Christmas. But we're going to pause and teach a practice like a specific discipline, a thing that we see that all followers of Jesus should probably know about and be about that's pretty central to the way of Jesus and something that will bind us together in like a way of life. So we'll pause and take 
two, three, four weeks and learn a practice together. Learn something about what it means to be apprentices to Jesus. And so practice one is called the table. We say the table. This is our first practice. We want to take four weeks before Christmas, four Sundays, and talk about eating, drinking, and radical, ordinary hospitality. And what it means and the power of it to be followers of Jesus, informed by Jesus when we think about these kinds of things. As they gathered together, I spent like an hour yelling at everybody because it was Vision Sunday last week. So I'm going to just go reverse course and preach for a shorter amount of time on a stool. Does that sound good with you? Just trying to keep it fresh for everybody. Turn with me to Acts 2.42. Around a meal, we see Jesus being the servant of all. Acts 2.42. How good was last Sunday, though? All our churches came together. Oh, my Lord. I live for that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you're new to the scriptures, this is the early church. The first church, these disciples, these same disciples that were in the upper room, getting their feet washed by Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The synopsis of the early original church, the one practice that is repeated, not once, not twice, but three times is what? We just read it. They they broke bread. Yeah, they came together and they broke bread. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, it says. This is how you emphasize a point when you don't have bold and italic and underline and caps lock. This is how you emphasize something. The the, the writer doesn't all of a sudden just feel like just the random need to repeat things because he feels like it flows eloquently. No, no, no. This is the way of saying this is important. Pay attention. I'm going to say it three times. I'm going to say it three. So we should pay attention emphasizing and driving this point home. Romans 16, you have text greeting Priscilla and Aquila, my coworkers in Christ uh, at their house. The text Paul, as he's starting the church, he goes and meets at their house. Colossians, it says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and at Nympha and to the church in her house. So there are female church planters. Let's give it up for the female church planters in the text. That's just the Bible, just reading there. Philemon 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, uh, brother Philemon, our dear friend, fellow workers also to two people and to the church that meets in their home. And then notice the line from Jesus to the early church, all the way into Paul's letters, all the way through the, the New Testament is Jesus followers eating and drinking around a table in a home as a family. The New Testament tells the story about Jesus spread, the Jesus movement spread from a few dozen people around a table with Jesus uh, out in the streets of Jerusalem all the way through the Roman Empire to what it is today, which is a global historic movement, right? Right now, about 
two billion plus would call themselves followers of Jesus. So one way to tell the story, though, of what's happened in the gatherings of this people is to talk about architecture. So if you'd allow me uh, to nerd out on some of my friends' work around architecture, did a little research for you. Depends on how you break it down, but there have been four or so stages of church architecture, at least uh, in the West, over the last two millennia. Each one corresponds with the stages of church history. So the first was a home. Hundreds of years, followers of Jesus built zero buildings. It was not an option. They came together, uh, and so the center of gravity becomes the home. Now, in spite of that law, the gospel spreads all throughout the empire, and as churches grew in size and paganism started to die out, some churches moved into basilicas and temples that were like to Apollo or Zeus. But still, those buildings were not how we think of most buildings today. They were like a large octagon with a table at the center of gravity. So this would be stage one. Two, cathedrals come into play. Once the way of Jesus was legalized in the fourth century, it spread out to the edge of the empire and the church started building cathedrals. So early on, they were Romanesque. Uh, think of like Goth- or Gothic style, like Notre Dame or in Paris. Almost all of them were built in the shape of a cross. I don't know if you've ever looked at a bird's eye view of a cathedral. Anyone ever done this? They're all in the shape of a giant cross. And so with this shift, the meal devolved into a drink of wine and a bite of bread, which is similar to what we often do here I said devolved because I, well, we'll talk about that another week. If you've ever been to one of these cathedrals, you know, anyone ever been in like in Notre Dame? Yeah, like, like you go in there and you try to talk. Like you can't communicate. Like if I can't get up and do what I'm doing right now, it wouldn't work. Truly. It would just bounce off the walls and echo and no one could really hear me. Uh, the acoustics were, are, are like designed to bounce off the walls. Like literally you can't hear a thing. Uh, It was not designed for the teaching of the word. The mass was said in Latin, uh, and it was basically, nobody spoke Latin except for the few priests. Uh, So at its best iteration, this stage of the church was like mystical, and at its worst, it was simply just magical. Uh, There was, there was a, there's some deep trouble around this season of the church. Then in the 16th century, out of the Protestant Reformation and the church's return, not only to the Bible, but to the teaching of the Bible, there, um, before the modern printing press, you just had a room designed much more like this. Someone would get up, and there was designed where everyone was facing forward so you could hear really clearly. This is like the simple churches you see around New England. It's basically just a house, a big box with a steeple on top. Right? The First Baptist Church, the white church that's right up here on the benefit, uh, right near Benefit Street, right on the hill, going into these sides. The First Baptist Church in all of America, first building. That building is just a big, giant box, a colonial house with a steeple on side. You'll see out in the, out in the um, country, like just shaker churches where, again, just a simple space, seats going forward so that you can speak uh, clearly. Um, and so, and there was a redesign of the church. So after the church moved from the altar, the pulpit started to come into place. So this would have been a church on the boundary of that. So you can still see the altar in this building. Is still in the center for communion. And the preaching, though, in some way, even though it wasn't at the center, right, is elevated. This is all part of the Protestant movement. I should be preaching there. So there's still an emphasis on, like, the table is important, but the elevation of teaching and the way this room is designed, the reason for the top part there is literally so you can, you can hear someone speak in here without any amplification. And then lastly, you have a shift to the theater. 
So around uh, the turn of the late last century, at the same time of the rise of the entertainment culture due to technology such as radio and then TV, film, urbanization, where people are now crowded together in a city, music starts to become incredibly central. The emphasis on worship by like singing has always been around, but then you see the pipe organ and you see the piano starting to be up front and center. And so though music, again, was not a new idea in church, it started to play a very, very dominant role. So at the same time, Protestants started to spend more and more money on church buildings. And so the church evolves into this almost like theater style. So it moves from the altar and the pulpit to the stage. Right? We even sensed this tension when we came in here. There's no stage here. We had to move choir lofts out. We couldn't do anything with the piano and the pipe organ, though we love them. And so we have this one little strip back here and take stuff out around the altar. And uh, much to some of the older folks at Gloria Day's chagrin, they were not psyched about it, but they went with it, uh, allowed us to kind of make a makeshift stage. But if you go into most modern churches now or your average megachurch or something like that in the West, you, it's just a big stage. So it's moved from the altar or the pulpit to the stage itself. So I'm not moralizing any of this as good or bad. Uh, I'll do that later. Uh, I'm I'm kidding. I'm just doing my best to tell a story of this is kind of what's happened. Uh, And so still today in China, though, you see in places where there is the church is oppressed. It doesn't have the same sort of uh, legal um, openings that we have. Uh, you see churches meeting in homes. The original architecture, the point of this, is the original architecture was a table and a home, and that says something about what church is supposed to be at its core. It says something about what it maybe is supposed to be or what the idea started out like. The word Christian is used three times in the writings of the New Testament. There are two other far more dominant words for what you and I are in relationship to God and in relationship to each other. And the first is is a Greek word that basically we translate as disciple or apprentice. It's used 268 times. And the other one is the Greek word adelphoi, which is translated sisters or brothers. Or if you have an old school translation of the Bible, it's brethren. Anyone have brethren in their Bible? It's so good. The brethren. Don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. It's a little patriarchal, but it feels a little good. No, never mind. I'll stop. This is used upwards of 350 times, and this goes all the way back to Jesus himself, who calls his apprentices Adelphoi, or his brothers and sisters. His family said things like, which I love so much better, right? You're my brother, you're my sister. Hey, we're both followers of Jesus, versus just putting some disconnected tag on it, like that's my religious system. His family said things like this. Whoever does the will of God is my brother or sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is my family. We get a little picture of what the gatherings were like from a writer named Tertullian. Again, I'm sorry for the lack of slides. Stay with me and listen here. This is Tertullian, first century. He's writing about what these first gatherings were like. Isn't this interesting that we have this? Like, what was going on? This isn't the full piece of it, but this is some of it. Our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. In other words, whatever we have to do to make this thing happen, it's worth it. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. We throw a dinner every week because then if they're needy there, they get to eat. Sweet. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants before reclining taste first the prayer, taste first of prayer to God, as much as eaten as satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk as befits the chaste, some of you, after 
Each is asked to stand forth and sing as they can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of their own composing. As the feast commended with prayer, so with prayer it is closed. They come together, they pray, they eat, they share with the needy, and then some people just kind of like popcorn-style sing. They either sing from the Scriptures or if they have an original, that's what it says right here, just sing it. I think we should start doing this. We definitely don't need to fix the projector now. Just like Ricky, like, give us a tune. You know, <laughs> I know you good. Just let's st stand and sing. Anybody got a good one? My daughter would be like. <laughs> he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. This is like the center of the, of the things of Jesus. This is what he says, this meal what we call church is by definition followers of Jesus then who live as family. And the table becomes the center of the family. So it comes as no surprise that the original architecture of the church was a table in a home. The weekly gathering itself, which was on a Sunday night, because Sunday was a work day in the Roman world. Paul says, when you come together to eat. Like when you come together, he means like for your Sunday gathering. It's not peripheral. It's not like they got together and they had a meal, and then they got to the church stuff. It was all bound together. It's integrated. Some of our home groups have been experiencing this. Coming together and like the meal, like there's a rule in one of the home groups, and I love this, we should adopt this across the board. It's like, it's only, only talk of Jesus when we eat together, which kind of is everything. It's not like you don't catch up on your day, but like what, what's God doing in your life? What's been, what's been happening? What's hard right now? How can I pray for you? One group was telling me like, like the mid meal, they're all eating and hanging out and somebody just opened up a bottle of wine and they're like eating and drinking together and talking about, and there's like, I think we should take communion. Like this is just so rich and beautiful. And it turns out as they're going around and they read the communion text, you know, it says if there's any, if you have any issues with your brother or sister, like resolve that before you come and take, the, before you come and take this symbol and sure enough, there were some things. So they started like talking about some of the things that existed at the table and there was resolution and there's a couple tears as far as I understand the story. And then they prayed for one another and then they drank wine and ate bread and they gave thanks and then they went and saw a show together. <laughs> it was great. They brought some of that meal into ASD 20 that night. Sufian Stevens, the, the prophet, says this. He goes, I mean, it's weird. What's the basis of Christianity? It's really a meal. It's communion, right? It's the Eucharist. That's it. It's the sharing a meal with your neighbors. And what is that meal? It's the body and blood of Christ. Basically, God offering himself up to you as nutrition. It's pretty weird. It's pretty weird if you think about it, that that's the basis of your faith. You know, God is supplying a kind of refreshment, a food for a meal and food for a meal. Everything else is just accessories. It's all vital, of course, baptism, marriage, and there's always the sacraments and praying and the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. But really, fundamentally, it's just about a meal. Sophie Stevens is a famous indie artist, for those who don't know. What does it say about the modern church that we call our weekly time a service? And it's the pastor's job to provide goods and services to the religious consumer rather than what the first church called themselves an agape feast, a love feast. That was the way the, their, their gatherings were described. And they did not name themselves, which is always the best. The outside world looked in and go, love feast. <laughs> so 70s, right? I love that. Bro, you going to my love feast? 
We thought about changing home group instead of the home church to love feast, but contextualization and all of that. Look, most of the most dangerous and provocative and life-changing ideas are the simplest ones. And so I have no real fancy footwork for you in this sermon today. It's simply we need to make sure that we are a church that is revolving around the power of the table. Because um, with all that feels like it's deteriorating in our world, like civility, and like peace and unity and love and connection and understanding with one another, I can't help but wonder if one of the subplots is that we have lost sight of this practice. I want to make a little case for you for a moment. The words communion and community and companion all come from the same Latin root, word cum. It means together. So part of the word is, is cum, meaning together, and penis, which means bread. So communion, community, and companion all come from this Latin root, meaning like together and bread. So a community is what a companion is somebody, a community or a companion is somebody that you break bread together with. The table is meant to catalyze community. Food and drink take friendship and they turn it into family. There's something powerful about this idea. So Leonard Sweet in his book called From Table to Tablet, which is a great name for a book, talks about a shift that he sees. He says, an untabled faith. So a way of Jesus that does not have a... a, a a center of gravity around the table is an unstable one. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. Catchy. A lot of followers of Jesus in the West have an unstable faith, he writes, and needs, uh, they need a faith where eating and drinking around a table with other followers of Jesus is a core practice, is a core practice. A tabled faith is an unstable, sorry, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. And neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and communities. This isn't just an art that gets lost in the church, but in society. The Atlantic recently just posted an article called The Importance of Eating Together. And it summarizes all the recent statistical data that points to the same exact conclusion. There is a direct corollary between how many times a family eats together each week and how the children do all sorts, do in all sorts of areas of academic performance to obesity to everything in between. For example, children and families that don't regularly eat together are 40% more likely to be obese, as well as have a higher risk of teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, and anxiety, to name a few. Whereas children and families that eat together and on a regular basis on a regular basis have lower rates of all of the above, higher graduation rates and have a better relationship with mom and dad. Some mental health professionals are going so far as to say that the solution for well-being in our day and age is simple. Eat together as a family. Some recent neurobiology that basically says the happiest human beings ever are around a table with family and friends more often than not. The only way to improve upon that level of happiness in this study was to eat outside. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and yet, the Norman Rockwell image of the family around a table is hopelessly, hopelessly, hopelessly out of date. 
Divorce is the new normal for over half of couples. Most families in particular in a city like, uh, can't afford to uh, have somebody at home to even prepare the meals. Right? Everyone's kind of racing home at the last moment. There's no partner to stay home and prep dinner. Most parents don't even know how to cook anymore. There's interesting data about that. The average American family, and this is crazy, now spends the same amount of time, amount on fast food as they do on groceries every month. The average American eats one out of five meals in the car. Only 17% of American families regularly sit down for a meal. Over half of them do it over TV, and when they do eat together, one, uh, one really recent study shows that the average meal time 60 years ago is about an hour and a half. Now it's down to about 12 minutes. Crazy, right? Yeah, I think it's crazy. A family has always been, I realize these are hard statements sometimes to hear because many of us come from these very broken families that are described in these statistics, but the family has always been the building block of society. And if it's not spending time around the table, what we're seeing, the observations that are being made, again, none of these things that I just read are like with some agenda from some Christian, I don't know, stay at home and eat thing. Because as if that's a thing. <laughs> I don't know. There's weird stuff out there. All right, last stat I have for you. Over the last three decades, there have been, there's been a 45% decline in hospitality in the U.S. So an open home coming over a neighbor. This has been cut in half. And as a result, we live in a world full of lonely people. As Mother Teresa said, loneliness is the leprosy of our modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of our modern world. Do you feel that? How much time are you at home? Answer that question. And then the second question is, what are you doing in there? What are you doing in there? Spend a good amount of time at home. What are you doing in there? Right? Is it getting awesome? Gathering around a table together? You eating together? Do you have a standard meal time where people like can come over and just you, you open up your table pretty regularly? Live with roommates? Do you ever gather together for a meal? I know it's hard. It's super hard. What are we doing in there? Do we recognize the power of the very simple thing? Often it's the most radical and world-changing things that are the most simple. It's not that they have been tried and found lacking, G.K. Chesterton says. It's that they just haven't been tried. How can we get better at this church? There's an article I encourage you to read. I don't have time to quote it now because we're running a little over, but basically it's just politics, about politics and how they, by Ben Sasse, and it's like, they, they're not going to solve as we're on the eve of election day. The politics are not going to solve our problems because our problems are not political ones. They are loneliness. They are tribalism. They are how insular we are. The division is not if we could just get a candidate at the top who will be nicer. That will, he just makes a compelling case. That's not like a, trying to dissuade you from going to vote on Tuesday. But please know how far your vote really goes versus how far that meal with a stranger or an enemy or a loved one will go. Central to following Jesus is eating and drinking with other followers of Jesus and doing life together as family and allowing that to be a safe and rich and beautiful place to invite in all of those who are not a part of that family the meal. The things around it are about healing and salvation and God's love. You know, the word salvation in the New Testament could be, could be swapped for healing every time. It's the same word. There's no difference. Healing and salvation. 
And the Latin word for salvation actually has this, this connotation of like, uh, like salve. It's like a burn or a wound, ointment being put on a burn or a wound. Salvation is by definition healing of your whole soul. And so I can't think of a better practice to partner with Jesus in is to, to heal the soul of the church and to heal the soul of the West and our nation than around eating and drinking. Because at the center of this practice is his love. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And I want to set us up for this because I know I'm doing a lot of word studies here. Stay with me. In the New Testament, the synonym for eating and drinking is hospitality. That's the synonym. And the word hospitality in the Greek is philozinia. It's a compound word from the root word philio, which is one of the three Greek words for love. Hospitality and love are connected It's more basically the kind of love between a brother or sister or a mom or dad. It's a family kind of love. This is right. The birthplace of our nation is called what? Philadelphia. Awesome. Right? What's Philadelphia? What's the slogan? The city of what? Brotherly love. This is where the word comes from. It's family love. At the the root of the word hospitality is family love. It's a love for brother and sister. Love is what hospitality and eating and drinking is all about. And that is at the very center of Jesus. Jesus said the most important command in all the library of scripture is to love God with your whole heart and your whole soul and your mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And when asked who your neighbor is, Jesus basically says, who do you think your neighbor is? Jesus, the end of his life, just before his death, he sets a new command before them and he says, I give you three words, love one another. And then he sat down for a meal and he picked up a towel and he washed their feet. And he washed their feet. Love gets a definition. Love is the fundamental disposition of the heart where your heart is the fulcrum of your desire and your will, you will the good of another. Love is about willing the good of another, no matter what the cost is for you. And hospitality is one of the most tangible, concrete, flesh and blood ways that we can show our love for one another. Here's a meal. Here's a cup of coffee. Come and sit with my kids. Do you know one of the greatest joys we have had in our family has been able to invite members of the LGBTQ community around our table. So often there's alienation and loneliness and decay say, come sit with us, come get to know our kids, come eat, come be around us. You know, the last time like I took a picture of our table, there was a handgun on it because a friend of mine who was going through hell and making some poor choices sat down at the table and we had a meal together. And at the end of that meal, he recognized what was going on and how bad the situation was. And he pulled it out of his bag gently and warned us. <laughs> Another person, it was like one of the loneliness. And I know there's a lot of loneliness in this room right now. It was being able to just say, Hey, we have like a standing family dinner. I didn't have to plan a counseling appointment. I didn't have any time. There's so much going on. They were going through hell. It's been a really rough season. Just, hey, just come over. Just come and sit at the table. Just, we, have, we have a meal. We have a standing meal. Come and hang out. The amount of times, like my talking does very little. My wife's talking does very little. It's usually like sitting next to my daughter, Harper, and just talking about food that provides such a healing bomb to people's souls, but then opens up and creates a doorway to the kingdom of God. 
We'll share more about the table as a mission in weeks to come. But the gospel call that renders strangers into neighbors, into family, so often happens around the table. And this has to start inside our church. Paul has this line to the church in Galatia. He says, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. Let us love everybody, especially those of the family of believers. Practice hospitality, Romans 13 talks about, gives a command, practice this kind of love. Practice it. It's a command, not a suggestion for when you might be able to free up some time. Do it. Eat together. Watch what happens. Come, invite the spirit to come. Have a mind and an eye to see what God might be doing around the table. Our goal here is not just to love people and practice hospitality, but it's to become hospitable people too from the inside out. There's a difference between the act of doing that and I can't really stand my boss, but I love him in Jesus' name, which is a great start. But to actually become the kind of person who doesn't hate, who moves through the world with a sort of love and hospitality and peace that as we pray often, you have the eyes to see what God is up to. So what will you do with your table? As we get ready to come forward and be reminded and rehearse again, or to be reminded of this great meal that Jesus gave us, to be reminded of his love for us. Invite the ushers up. What are you going to do with your table? Is it going to be ramen in his name? You don't have to have a big spread. What's it going to be? What is the heart posture of how you want to practice the life of Jesus? How can we grow? Folks, there are some of us, we don't need to even look outside of this room. There are people in this community who have been heard and felt lonely and felt pushed aside who need you even today. Pay attention. Are you going to brunch with some folks? Go and treat somebody. Do you want money to treat somebody? Come, I'll find some cash and I'll give it to you. You have a sense that God's calling you to help heal and take care of somebody today. Maybe it's just your own family and you need to like, this isn't about outreach. This is about we need to experience the healing of the meal and come and make a meal together and take a few minutes to pray and to give thanks for God's great blessings. And then to ask your kids or ask your friends, hey, who should we have around this table next week? I don't know. Simple practice, welcome the Holy Spirit, tap into the love of the Father. And so I want to say one last word here. Uh, families, look for single people to invite into your life. There are particular single people who don't have family in town or don't have family who follow Jesus or who have some kind of wound from that, just being wherever they're at in life. Look for the single people and invite them in. Single people, you're not like, like this is not a weird situation. Most kids, if you're especially between the ages of like 18 and 30, you're like a demigod to any, any kid in their house. I don't know what it is, but it can be powerful and beautiful. And any stay-at-home parents, like you, you could use maybe a single person who might come into your house and just provide some sort of fun and entertainment for a moment because you're dying. <laughs> now let me turn attention to single people. Look for families. There's this wedge between single and families that shouldn't be there. I think it's a lie from the pit of hell. So many single people, so many people in families, we need each other. Look for people across the political aisle, look for people across the socioeconomic, 
aisle, the racial aisle. Look for the widows and the widowers. Look for the refugee. Look for the person who's hurting. Remember, when you open that door, you receive a woman or a man as a child of God into your life and into your house. Jesus says, book of Luke, we give a, we're given an image of his mission. And it says in the text that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's good, right? We know that verse. He came to seek and to save the lost. And then if we were to ask the question, how did he come? That's what he came. Is there a way he came? And Luke answers it. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth came eating and drinking. The medium is the message. It's not just the words that Jesus had to say or the words we have to say to each other, but how we come is just as important. Today, I truly believe as we close our time, God's going to provide healing for us around this table. The lonely and tasting that bread and cup, know first and foremost, God's love for you. And if you can will it, and I know it's hard, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, I could use a meal. But that's a hard task for that person, right? So again, to my brothers and sisters who are headed to brunch or have dinners planned this week or need to reorder your steps a little bit, let us be a community, first and foremost, that takes care of one another, that we say we, there are no needy among us. That doesn't just apply to putting money in an offering basket. That's like, yeah, there's no needy among us. We're doing our best to invite each other over our tables. The reason why we mandate or try to meals at our home churches is for this very reason. It unlocks something in our heart and our soul. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When someone asks you, why are you a Christian? What does it mean to be a, or what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, it means a lot of things. I just believe being generous is a better way to live. I believe trusting your loved is a better way to live. I believe having no fear of death is a better way to live. I believe knowing that I'm not at the center of the universe is a better way to live. I also believe that doing life around a table is a better way to live. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us people who so often can lose track of the hurting. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your salvation, for your healing, your healing touch, and how I have seen time and again so many healed around the table, healed around the bread and the cup. And so as we come and as we close our time, I ask, Lord, that you would provide healing for us. As we sing, oh, come to the altar, we might as well sing, oh, come to the table. In fact, Brent, will you sing, oh, come to the table? <laughs> oh, come to the table. The Father's arms are open wide. His forgiveness is here. His love is here. His life is here. Sing hallelujah for he has risen and he is putting things back together, starting with this meal. His body broken and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And everybody said, and everybody said, and everybody said, let's come forward. Some of us would join our hearts to give thanks for his love. And for some of us, it's for healing. There's people here who would love to pray for you. Uh, there's people next to you who might love to pray for you. But before we rush off, let's come. Let's take communion together, sing one chorus together, and be on our way to be the church that we are called to be in our city. Amen. Would you come forward up the middle, take the bread, and dip it in the cup.